When we come to the gospel records, there are various words that are recorded that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke from the cross. Not all of them are found in each gospel, but when you take Matthew, Mark, Luke and John together, you get the aggregate of the number of words that Jesus spoke, sentences that he spoke from the cross, and there are seven of them. We often refer to them as the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. One of those is found in this passage. You'll see it here in verse 34 of Mark chapter 15, where the Bible says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Arthur W. Pink said, these are words of startling import. The crucifixion of the Lord of glory was the most extraordinary event that has ever happened on earth. And this cry of the suffering one was the most startling utterance of that appalling scene. That innocence should be condemned, that the guiltless should be persecuted, that a benefactor should be cruelly put to death was no new event in history. From the murder of righteous Abel to that of Zacharias, there was a long list of such martyrdoms. But he who hung on this central cross was no ordinary man. He was the Son of Man, the one in whom all excellencies met, the perfect one, like his robe, his character was without seam, woven from the top throughout. And Pink went on to say that in dealing with this particular phrase that is used of Christ, Why hast thou forsaken me? We are conducted into the Holy of Holies. The preacher said, here, if anywhere, it is supremely fitting that we remove the shoes of carnal inquisitiveness. Speculation were profane. We can but wonder and worship. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's interesting for me as I look at the various sayings of Christ on the cross. There are some of those statements that come as no surprise to us. For instance, when the Lord said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That comes as no shock or surprise to us who know the purpose for which the Lord Jesus came. The Savior always taught on the subject of Forgiveness. He taught us even to forgive our own enemies. And he came to make forgiveness of sin a reality for us. So we're not greatly surprised that he said to the thief as well, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Because this forgiving Christ was able to forgive the sins of this man, 
even though he, along with his fellow, was one of those who reviled Christ. I pointed this out last time, the remarkable nature of this. In verse 32 of Mark 15, the Bible shows us the mockery of those chief priests and scribes. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. But notice these words, And they that were crucified with him reviled him. It doesn't say one of those that was crucified with him. It says they that were crucified with him. That's both thieves. Reviling Christ. And yet within a very short time, the one thief, because of the operation of the Spirit of God in his heart, said, Lord, remember me when I cometh into thy kingdom. And not surprisingly, our forgiving Christ said to him, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. See, the Lord died to bring repentant sinners to heaven. Those who trust in Him, who repent of their sins, were not surprised that the Lord would tell them, you will be with me in glory. There's another saying of Christ that doesn't surprise us. When looking at His mother Mary standing by the cross, He said, woman, behold thy son. And then looking at John the Beloved, He said to him, behold thy mother. Committing her care to this beloved disciple. That should not surprise us at all when we think that the Lord was the perfect one. One who always kept the law of God, who honored his earthly guardians and parents. Even that time when they were chiding him for going and staying behind in the temple. When he said, wist you not that I must be about my father's business? The Bible goes on to say that he went down with them unto Nazareth and was subject to them. Continuing to be a loving son in that home. Here he is at the cross as a loving son, thinking about his earthly mother, honoring her. That doesn't surprise us at all. But I have to say when you come to this word, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's a mysterious word. That does surprise us. That does startle us. That is a wonder of great wonders. Finite minds could never possibly fathom all that was involved in that particular statement from the cross. Which was, of course, the central statement. Martin Luther was so taken with this text... And the import of it that he felt he could never preach upon it. And that's no surprise to me. Because there's a depth here that we cannot fathom. The Son of God forsaken of his friends and followers. We can understand that. Even though it's wrong. Even though it's sad. We know how men are. We know that those who are our friends today will turn on us tomorrow. Forsaken by his own nation, that's also no real shock to us. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But forsaken by his father, deserted by his father, 
We cannot enter into the Saviour's experience of this. But we can only stand in awe and wonder at this statement. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of course, these are words that are found in the Old Testament. In Psalm 22, the psalm begins with these words. They're in the mouth of the psalmist. But obviously they are prophetic words. They're words that are brought back to the mind of the Savior on the cross. And he quotes the psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here is the climax of the sufferings of Christ. Are you not surprised that there is no in-depth record of the sufferings of the Lord in the Gospels. That is to say, going into all that was involved in the act of crucifixion. I think that's an interesting observation to make. There are those who have spoken about the rigors of those who were crucified and the terrible sufferings that they endured. The Holy Spirit has not seen fit to go into any detail in regard to that. It's not that those sufferings weren't real. It's not that they weren't important. But I think the Lord would have us to understand that the climax of all the sufferings of Christ was not in the act of nailing Him to a tree or mocking Him or pulling the hairs from His beard or spitting upon Him or putting deep Wounds into his head through eastern thorns being battered into his skull with a stick. All of those things were bad. But the climax of all his sufferings is right here. Where he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Something that's remarkable as well is that in all the Lord endured in his body at the hands of men, wicked men, he suffered in silence. The scourging and the beating and the crowning with thorns and the nailing, there's no complaint, there's no word coming out of his mouth. But now in agony of soul, because of his suffering at the hand of God, enduring the wrath of His Father, he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Pink again said, These words are words of startling import. Words of appalling woe. Words of deepest mystery. Words of unique pathos. Words of profound solemnity. Yet are we not left in ignorance as to their meaning? True, this cry was deeply mysterious, yet it is capable of most blessed solution. There are reasons why, and there are doctrines connected with what the Lord Jesus Christ spoke here. And though we cannot really understand this word, there's a mystery here that we cannot fathom. There are a number of things that we can learn from the statement. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The first of those is the heinousness of sin. We understand from what our Lord is saying here 
The heinousness of sin. What an accursed thing it was that put the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What an accursed thing that caused him to be forsaken and abandoned by God. It was sin. Sin is always that which separates. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. There we read what is history. Real history. Of how sin entered into the world. How our first parents, Adam and Eve, transgressed God's commandment. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 records that they, that's Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Why were they hiding themselves from God? Because of their sin. We go on in that passage and read in verse 23 and 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Sin separated our first parents from the fellowship of their Creator. My Bible tells me that in Adam all die. In Adam all have died. And in Adam they've been all separated from the fountain of life himself which is God. We have lost communion with our maker because of sin. Sin separates us from God. And that is why the scripture speaks of each one of us being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in us. The psalmist writes, That we're born in sin and shapen in iniquity. That the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Or as it is in Isaiah 59 verse 2, your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God. In Adam, we have forsaken God. And so he has forsaken us. The Lord Jesus Christ, however, was not a sinner. He was not a sinner. He was and is the second person of the Godhead. He is the Son of God. As such, He enjoyed constant communion and fellowship with the Father from all eternity. Providentially, in our weekly reading... In the book of Proverbs, at the beginning of our Lord's Day morning service, today we read Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 30, where it says, Then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The fulfillment of that prophetically is the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in his earthly ministry, as the God-man, we find that he was never forsaken of his Father. Never. 
He was always engaged in prayer, in communion, in fellowship with the Father. Read with me in John chapter 8. And again in John chapter 16. But John chapter 8, first of all, verse 29. The words of Christ, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. You see that? He's always in fellowship with the Father. He's always in communion with the Father. There's never anything that comes between Him and the Father. He hath not left me alone, because for I do always those things that please Him. Again, John 16, verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So even if you all leave me, you all flee, and I'm left alone, I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. When others left the side of Christ, God did not. But what do we find at Calvary's cross? He has been left alone. He has been forsaken of God. He has been abandoned by the Father. But why? Well, there's a simple answer. Because there he was made sin for us. He became so identified with our sin, bearing our sins in his own body to the tree, that the Father turned his face away from him. This is the result of sin. This is the heinousness of sin. What a wicked, wretched and vile thing sin is. Always remember this. What a horrible thing sin is because it hid the face of God from his own Son. Hence this terrible cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not only is it because of the heinousness of sin that this word was spoken, but we're shown here the holiness of God. The holiness of God. That the Father should abandon the Son, that the Father should forsake the Son, reveals to you and to me the inflexible justice and holiness of of a righteous God. See, God is holy. He is ineffably holy. We sometimes sing to Him, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The thrice holy God. So holy that the Bible tells us in First Timothy that He dwells in light that no man can approach unto. Even Job discovered that the heavens are not clean in his sight. Job chapter 15, verse 15. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. And he's referring there, I believe, to the angels. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have the vision of the prophet in the temple of God. 
He sees the Lord in His Shekinah glory. He sees Him upon a throne high and lifted up, His train filling the temple. He sees those angelic figures, those cherubs, and those angelic creatures, each one with six wings, had two wings that covered their faces, with two that covered their feet, and with two they flew. And it says that one of those seraphim said to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Oh, the holiness of God. Habakkuk tells us in chapter 1 verse 13 of his prophecy that he is of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. And we keep that in mind and realize that because God is so holy, He will not, He never will overlook sin. He doesn't wink at sin. He must punish sin. He always punishes sin. Always. You say, but doesn't God forgive sin? Yes, He does, but on the basis of atonement. That sin is not just forgiven willy-nilly, so to speak, forgotten all about, no matter about God's law being broken. God honors His law, and that sin has to be paid for. It's either paid for through our substitute, or it's paid for in hell, fire, forever. Sin is always punished. He will not overlook it. And so even when sin was laid upon his dear son, laid upon him at the cross, God would not turn a blind eye to it, but he would not look upon him. If you like, the father deserted Christ there at the cross because he is holy and will never spare sin, even when it's found in the sinless Christ. And the Lord Jesus himself, you know, was not unaware of the reason for this forsaking. Because if you go back to the original scripture that he was quoting, Psalm 22, it is of course a question. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O God, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But look at verse 3. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. There's the answer. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But thou art holy. All through the scriptures, the holiness of God is emphasized by his inflicting punishment upon sin. We think of the great worldwide flood. The words that are used by the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 6. Again, this is real history. Let nobody tell you otherwise. Genesis 6, verse 12 and 13. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. 
For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Sin is going to be punished. That's what the flood was. It was a, an inflicting of divine justice. Divine wrath poured out upon human iniquity. And later in our Bibles, it is recorded how God spared not the old world. The antediluvian world, that is before the flood. We also read in Genesis chapter 19 of this punishing by God of human sin. Wickedness that came up before him in Genesis 19, 24 and 25. Again, this is real history. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. An inflicting by God of judgment upon wickedness. And I could go on. Think about the destruction of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Again, that's history. That really happened. Where the waters that had been divided to allow the children of Israel across came back in with a vengeance upon Pharaoh and his hosts. Think about the overthrow of Jericho. People often think about the walls of Jericho falling down and they think they fell down like this. No, they didn't. They fell down like this. The Lord opened the ground and the walls went down under them. That's why they didn't have to crawl over rubble to get into the city. They just walked straight into it. And that's why Rahab was saved. Because her house was built on top of the wall. And so when the wall fell down in under it, there was only one house that was left standing. It was hers built on top of the wall. Now why did it happen? Because of their sin. Because of their wickedness. Again, we read in the New Testament, God spared not the angels that sinned. Those who rebelled against Him up there in heaven itself, along with Lucifer, they were cast down into hell. He spared not the people of Israel for their unbelief and their wickedness. And time and time again we see judgments visited upon human sin, even in a physical sense. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their hosts swallowed up and going down alive into the pit. These things really happened. And what do they show us? They show us the ineffable holiness of God, the justice of God in punishing sin, which is the breach of His law. But friends, the greatest evidence of the holiness of God is how Christ was treated when He was bearing our sins. God spared not the old world. God spared not the angels that sinned. But Romans 8 verse 32 tells us, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God spared not his own son. Why? He was forsaken 
as he bore our sins upon the cross during those three hours of darkness at Calvary. God's holy character had to judge sin even when it was found on Christ. And so the Savior uttered this great cry, because God is holy. We learn about the heinousness of sin. We learn about the holiness of God. We also learn from this great statement, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? About the height of love. The height of love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. There is no greater, greater evidence of the love of God for us than this. If I might quote Arthur Pink again, he said, The greatness of Christ's love can be estimated only when we are able to measure what was involved in the laying down of his life. As we have seen, it means much more than physical death, even though that be one of unspeakable shame and indescribable suffering. It meant that he took our place and was made sin for us. And what this involved can only be judged in the light of his person. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them even unto the end. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. The Bible teaches us that God is not only holy and that God is just, but also that God is love. That's a great statement, isn't it, in First John? God is love. And nowhere is the love of God exhibited in as full or as great a way as it is at Calvary. Listen to the words of the Apostle John. First John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. Oh, the love of God. It's greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. That last verse of that hymn, The Love of God, is attributed to a man who was incarcerated in a mental institution. And apparently he scrawled those words on the wall of that cell where he was kept. I always think there's a depth to those words that you don't find in a lot of hymns. Could we, with ink, the ocean fill? And were every man a scribe by trade? Where every, what's the word? Stock on earth a quill. And every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could a scroll 
contained the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Imagine a man writing that in a mental institution. It's a man who knew God and who knew by experience the love of God. Friends, we should never forget that God sent Christ in love. We must never forget that Christ came and suffered and was willing to be forsaken of God because he loved us. And we should not also forget the love of the Spirit because the Bible talks about that as well. In John chapter 15, the scripture says in verse number 13, John 15 and verse 13, Greater love hath no man than this, but a man lay down his life for his friends. And then in John 13 verse 1, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them even unto the end. You and I cannot fathom the height or the depth of the love of God. I recall in our youth fellowship we learned a chorus that everybody loved to sing. You might know it. Jesus' love is very wonderful. Jesus' love is very wonderful. Jesus' love is very wonderful. Oh, wonderful love. It's so high, you can't get over it. It's so low, you can't get under it. So wide, you can't get round it. Oh, wonderful love. We can't fathom the height or the depth or the length or the breadth of the love of God. And yet we get an idea of what it is when we consider what the Savior endured for us at Calvary. Now we cannot imagine what his holy soul experienced when the sins of ungodly men were transferred to his person. We get some idea of how he felt about it in the garden when he prayed, when he was sore amazed and he was sore affrighted, when he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. The Holy One became sin for us. How can we imagine such a thing? Willingly taking upon his soul the filthy, vile, loathsome sins of men and women like us. It was the height of love. And you think of the wrath of Almighty God that he endured. We read there in the Psalms, All thy billows and thy waves are gone over me. There is a verse that speaks of Jerusalem itself, but it's applied obviously to our Lord Jesus Christ. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, that which is done unto me in the day of God's fierce anger. Let me tell you that the sufferings of Christ were both in body and soul. But as the Puritan John Flavel put it, the sufferings of his soul were the very soul of his sufferings. And that's what we have to concentrate upon. What was it for Christ to bear our sins in his own body on the tree? What was that like for him? There is a green hill far away. Without a city wall. 
where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. The cry from the cross at the time of his forsaking by God shows us the height of the love involved. That God would forsake his son in order that we might be saved. But I think as well we must understand that these words reveal to us the hopelessness of hell. Pink talked about it as the destruction of the larger hope. This was something that was often preached in the days in which Spurgeon ministered and he refers to it often in his sermons about those Puseyites and others who used to preach what was called the larger hope. And by the way, that doctrine is still with us today. There are people still preaching this. And what is it? That in the end, God will feel sorry for everybody. And no matter who you are, hell-bound sinner or one who's already in hell, the Lord's going to open the gates of hell for everybody. Let them all out and everybody will go to heaven. The larger hope. I was going to say a famous preacher, an infamous one, not that long ago, wrote a book on that very subject. I think he called it Love Wins. Which is the greatest load of nonsense when you stop to think about it. Listen, the cry of the Saviour on the cross is actually a foretaste of the final condition of every lost soul. Because everybody who goes out into eternity without God and without Christ is forsaken of God. We hear the words of the Lord Jesus, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The hopelessness of hell. You know, on the cross, our Savior suffered the equivalent of an eternity in hell for all of his people. Now, I don't understand how that could be. Because if you're talking about eternity, that's never-ending wrath being crystallized into three hours upon the cross. How could that be? The only answer to that is that an infinite person is the only one capable of suffering infinite wrath. And such is Christ. He bore our hell for us upon the cross. There are really indicators of that when you see in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45 that he suffered in darkness. Matthew 27 45 puts it like this. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. That means it was pitch black at midday. Spurgeon preaching on this said, Suddenly at midday it was midnight. When God extinguished all the light upon this earth. And I know the word that's used in the Greek is capable of, of the translation land or earth. There was darkness over all the land, but the word 
I believe, signifies over all the earth. God plunged this earth into complete darkness because Christ was suffering wrath upon the cross. He drew the curtains across the transaction that was about to take place. Suffering in outer darkness is not what Jesus said hell was like, a place of outer darkness. Matthew chapter 8 verse 12 refers to it in this way. Matthew chapter 8, the twelfth verse. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's hell pictured even at the cross. To the unprepared soul, there's only the blackness of darkness forever that lies ahead. God is light. And to turn from His presence must be to go away into the darkness. So our Lord Jesus was totally forsaken and was left alone. The cross was a place of isolation for Him. Alone in the darkness He suffered. That's what hell is all about. People think they're going to go to hell and have a wonderful time. They'll have a party and jollification. Nothing could be further from the truth. For it's a place of total separation and isolation. Our Savior Himself talked about it. And I think I quoted it a minute or two ago. Matthew 25 and verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And to be in hell will be not only to suffer unspeakable agonies, but to experience the forsaking of God, to be abandoned by God, to experience God turning away from you forever. And that's what the Savior experienced on the cross, the equivalent of eternal separation from God. That cry of His is echoed by all the damned, forsaken, deserted, left by God eternally. No second chance, no probation, no escape, but everlastingly forsaken of God And of all the companionship of men, hell is a lonely place. Now the old devil tells people there is no such place. God won't damn anyone. There's no hell. When you die, you just get buried like a dog and that's it. But friends, the Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, after this, the judgment. The old serpent said to Eve in the garden, Hath God said thou shalt surely die? You're not going to die. God knows that if you were to eat of the fruit, you'll live forever. It's not true. There's no punishment. That's what the devil was telling our first parents. There's no such thing as punishment for sin. But God said, thou shalt surely die. And God is true. And the devil's a liar. Death came by sin. Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. And unbelieving, unrepentant sinners are going to go to the second death. The lake of fire. 
The Lord Jesus, however, was forsaken that we might never be forsaken. And so if we confess our sins to the Lord, we seek cleansing through his precious blood, we rest upon him alone for salvation, we'll never be in hell. How calm the judgment day is going to be for those who trust in God and who trust in his word. When we rest upon him alone for our salvation, we'll never be in hell. Because Jesus suffered our hell for us. I thank God it was for me that he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was abandoned that I might never be abandoned. He was forsaken that I might never be forsaken. But rather he was forsaken that I might be forgiven. What a gospel we have. There is a day of mercy. We're living in that day. But of course the day of mercy doesn't last forever. There is a time and there's a limit to God's mercy. May the Lord help us all to make our calling and election sure. May we all be found trusting in the one who died for sinners. Amen.